Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there, my name is Sam Maxwell and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Coming to us live from 83rd and 6th Avenue in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, is the official Brooklyn baseball historian, as people have referred him to me, Tom Knight. How you doing, Tom? Okay, Sam. Well, uh, let's get right into it. How did you come to be referred to as the official Brooklyn baseball historian? Well, ABC, this was 36 years ago, 37 years ago, ABC had an all-night radio show, and they were talking about Brooklyn, and they wanted someone to talk about Brooklyn baseball. So they invited me over to the station, and we did the broadcast. And uh, Joe Polisi, who was the uh, borough historian at that time, suggested to borough president Sam Leone that I be appointed the Brooklyn baseball historian. And that's how it happened. Well, excellent. So let's talk about your roots in Brooklyn. You were uh, when, when were you born? I was born in Park Slope, September 17th, 1926. And I lived in Park Slope for 60 years before I moved out here to Bay Ridge. And where in Park Slope did you live? I lived on, I was born on 7th Street, then I lived on 9th Street for about 67, 57 years. So I was on there 60 years altogether. 9th uh, Street and what? 9th Street and 4th Avenue. Ah, okay. And where when did you get out to Bay Ridge? I moved out here 25 years ago. Oh, very, very cool. And so when did you first go to a ball game? How did you get involved? Uh, well, in, my in first baseball game? game, my first baseball game was August 15th. 1936. I was 10 years old, and it was an unforgettable experience. The uh, church had a, uh, this was prior to the Knothole Gang, and they would have church groups and uh, school groups going out to Abbott's Feel Free. And I was invited by some friends to go to the ball game, and that was the first ball game I saw, and I fell in love with the game. The Giants beat the Dodgers that day by a score of 10 to 3, and I saw a Freddie Fitzsimmons pitching for the Giants, and Carl Hubble came in to relieve Hall of Famer Carl Hubble. And Carl Hubble was a 26-game winner that year, and yet occasionally he would come in on relief. Can you imagine any of these guys doing that today? And uh, <laughs> and uh, it was great. And he, he won in 1936. He won his last 16 games. And then he went into the following season, and he won eight games. So there was 24 consecutive victories, which is still a record. And uh, Brooklyn was always troublesome for Carl for some reason or other. They were the only team that had an advantage over him. They beat him more times than he, than he beat them. And uh, sure enough, they broke his 24-game winning streak up at the Polo Grounds. And... Uh, 55,000 people got on their feet and cheered Carl all the way as he walked from the pitcher's box out to that center field clubhouse. Uh, that sounds like something I would have liked to see. Oh, that was uh, a great so, day. So how, uh, before you actually fell in love with the game, going to your first game, do you remember uh, lingering outside the ballpark? Did you did you uh, have a, uh, an older sibling you would follow around uh, at all? Well, I, I, when I was a kid, I collected autographs. And, of course, you didn't have to pay for them in those days. And you would uh, see the players after the game out on the, in the street or on the subways. And uh, that's how I got a lot of autographs. Yeah. 
That's great. That's great. So what exactly about walking in uh, to your first game, what was it like when you when you walked through? Did you walk through the rotunda first? No, we went through the left field stands Okay. on Montgomery Street. So where did you first come out and see the, the field for the first time? Which which section of Evansville? Well, that was the first time I saw it, and uh, and it was a, a great experience. Which angle of the ballpark those, did you see first? To sit in those left field stands and see Bedford okay. Avenue beyond the screen and so forth. And uh, Mel Ott hit a home run that day, that first huh. game, and he went on to hit more than 500, of course. And of course. Uh, it was uh, quite an experience, and that was it. And then. I had an uncle who uh, gave me a World Series ticket for that year, and I saw my first World Series with the Yankees and Giants. And I saw Carl Hubble lose that day, although it didn't mean anything because it, was a non, it wasn't a league game, so it didn't affect his winning streak in the National mm. League. And Lou Gehrig had a home run off him that day. Wow. That's that's pretty amazing. And hope, uh, luckily, the Dodgers caught up a little bit to those two World Series um, uh, you know the Yankees and the Giants. I believe the Yankees won that 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 year. Am I correct? Right. And they won four in a row after that. That's right. They won and in thirty six, thirty seven, thirty eight, thirty nine. They they didn't win in uh, nineteen forty, but they faced the Dodgers. They in won in forty one with the Dodgers, right? And and eventually the Dodgers got uh, got to the World Series a lot. So. Uh, Larry right. McPhail was a big part of that at the, in nineteen thirty eight when he was brought on. Uh, what can yeah. you tell us about well, Larry McPhail? Well, of course, what do you remember about him? The first game I saw with the Dodgers, Casey Stengel was the manager. And uh, they changed managers during the season. They put my friend Burley Grimes in as manager. Hmm. Grimes, of course, was a great pitcher for the Dodgers. He won 20 games four times, the only Brooklyn pitcher to do that in modern times. And uh, it was Grimes during the 1937 World Series that made the deal that brought Leo DeRocher to Brooklyn. Grimes didn't realize he was bringing in his replacement at the time, and he was highly criticized for the deal because he gave up four players to get Leo. But Leo quickly captured the fans' imagination in 1938, and when Larry McPhail came in, he decided to change managers after the 1938 season, and he selected Leo DeRosha to succeed Burley Grimes. And that's how Leo got involved with the Dodgers. And Larry McPhail, of course, was a tremendous general manager. He he was a genius. He could recognize talent, and he, he built the Cincinnati Ball Club into a championship team, and then he came to Brooklyn when Brooklyn was in trouble, and Ford Frick recommended to Steve McKeever, the owner of the Dodgers, to get McPhail into Brooklyn, which he did. And McPhail quickly put lights on the ballpark, had, uh, in 1938, they had their first night game in the National League outside of Cincinnati. And uh, they beat the Giants and Dodgers, yet Giants and Yankees, to night baseball in New York. And, of course, the first night game in Brooklyn was June 15, 1938, when Johnny Vandermeer pitched his second consecutive no-hit game. But McPhail also repainted the place, put new uniforms on the ball team, new uniforms on the on the ushers, and uh, just to refurbish the entire place. And people started coming out. It was remarkable. And they won for the first time in several years. They got out of the second division, and Leo DeRosha led them to third place in 1939. And at the end of the 1939 season, the last Sunday in September, 
I was at the game at Ebbets Field when the attendance went over one million people, which was tremendous, a big crowd in those days. And uh, it was absolutely remarkable. Luke Hamlin, a Brooklyn pitcher, won his 20th game that day. And it was a great season for the Dodgers. And the Dodgers Symphony was in action at the start of that season. 1939 was also the first year that Red Barber and Red Barber on the came, radio. Absolutely. Wait, wait, wait. Tell, tell us some memories about about that first year listening to the ball uh, the ball game all around Brooklyn. MacPhail brought Red Barber over from Cincinnati with him, and Red Barber was absolutely marvelous. He was a friend of mine also, uh, but he uh, he was a great announcer, great broadcaster. He kept you in the game constantly. Of course, in those days. Uh, they just broadcast the game. You, you didn't have two or three guys having a conversation with the game interrupting them every now and then. But uh, Barber educated the people on baseball. And, of course, they were mostly night game, day games in those days, so a lot of women listened to the games, and they liked red. And uh, the, the ladies' day, they had ladies' days in those days, and the crowds had come out for that, and it was absolutely sensational. What do you remember uh, most about some of his lines? What, what's one of your favorite Red Barber lines? My favorite Red Barber line? Well, one of them was when he was talking about Walter O'Malley years later. He said Walter O'Malley was the most devious man he ever met. <laughs> so um, and uh, anyone else after that was, was all downhill for Walter. Right, of but, course. Um, well, let's get to Walter O'Malley real quick. Well, what can you tell us about, about the man and... and and what it was like following his ownership. Well, he took he, he he was a lawyer for the Brooklyn Trust Company. He didn't have any money, and uh, the Brooklyn team needed some legal help, so they invited O'Malley over from the Brooklyn Trust Company. That's how he got his foot in the door. And then a couple of years later, when there was an opportunity to buy stock for the team, he was offered the stock, but he didn't have the money. So he got a loan from the Brooklyn Trust Company of $200,000, which was approved by George V. McLaughlin, who was the vice president of the bank at the time and a former police commissioner. And um, years later, McLaughlin said if he ever knew what O'Malley was going to do, he would have never given that loan. But anyway, O'Malley was not from Brooklyn, you know. He came from Amityville, Long Island. And I always called him the original Amityville Horror. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's how O'Malley got in the door. And then he got he got into a tussle with Ricky. He wanted Ricky out of there. And Ricky made that team. Larry McPhail produced the winner in three three years. He had a National League championship team who lost to the Yankees in the 41 World Series. And uh, in 1942, they finished second. They had a very close weight race with the St. Louis Cardinals. But the Cardinals had a younger team, and they beat the Dodgers out in the last couple of weeks of the season. But uh, it was absent. Then the war came, the war came along, and McPhail, who was a very patriotic gentleman, joined the Army. He got a commission in the Army. He was in World War One, and he went back to World War Two. So that's when Ricky came into the picture. And then Ricky put a great team together with his farm system and everything else. And uh, those were Ricky's team that won in 1947 and 49, and then had a falling out with O'Malley in 50, and O'Malley bought him out at a considerable price because he thought he could finagle some money out of Ricky that he didn't deserve. 
But Ricky got a, a guy named Bill Zeckendorf, who was a mm-hmm. high high price financier in New York City, and he got a million dollars out of it for for Parents Ricky before he left the Dodgers. And then O'Malley, of course, got all the credit for the teams that won the pennants in 52, 53, 55 World Championships and so forth, mm-hmm. 56. And uh, another thing about Walter O'Malley, after he closed the deal with, Saint Le- with uh, Los Angeles, and he knew he was going to leave Brooklyn, he kept his button in the lapel, keep the Dodgers in Brooklyn. That was the type of man he was. He got every nickel he could that's, squeeze that's, out of the Brooklyn That's pretty malicious. That's yeah. pretty malicious. <laughs> well, so. go, let's go all the way back to the war. Um, tell me what living in Brooklyn was like while the war was going on. Well, it was interesting because every now and then we'd have air raid sirens going off in the middle of the night in, every, in the early years of the war. Uh, but uh, the guys had defense jobs. There were a lot of a lot of money floating around, of course. And uh, it, it was quite an interesting time. And uh, uh, there were all kinds of parties going on with fellas going off to service and coming back on leave. They had welcome home parties for, for them. And uh, it was really uh, a great time, considering a war was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, we were constantly getting bad news of casualties and so forth. That's the way it was. And I, I, I lost seven friends in World War Two from my old Park Slope neighborhood. And uh, but but other than that, there was no uh, no great problems. Yeah, we I had know you know we had uh, rationing like the whole country had mm-hmm. and things like that. I know the city had uh, blackouts. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure. Was it daily at some point? Uh, no, at, at night they would have uh, brownouts. They call them brownouts. Hmm. And the uh, subway trains, uh, some of which ran outdoors, uh, had light bulbs that were half black on the bottom to keep on the, keep the light out. And of course, uh, the lights in Coney Island had to be toned down and everything else. But uh, other than that, uh, things went along fairly smoothly. Do you have memories of going up on your part slope roof and, and checking out the stars during that time? What was that? Do you have memories of, of going up on your part slope roof and, and looking at the stars, which were, uh, I'm sure, much more visible than they generally are? Oh, sure, because of the blackouts. Uh, no two ways about that. But um, that, that was it. And mm-hmm. uh, the night when the night game started in Brooklyn, uh, they just had seven night games a year, one with each team in the league, and uh, that's how they started off. And it's just do you, uh, do you have any memories of the first one? Oh, sure, that was Vandermeer's no hitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Dixie Walker's first appearance, and I was at the night game when Dixie made his first appearance at Ebbets Field. Mm-hmm. He was another great move by Larry McPhail. Speaking of a great move by Larry McSale, after uh, the first night game, he brought Babe Ruth on uh, to to be the first base coach, but really draw the fans in, especially at batting practice. Oh, Can you sure. tell me uh, some memories about that? Did you see him in batting practice? Oh, sure. He, 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 Babe put on a great show during batting practice. He'd always he hit ones over those screens at the screen in right field without any problem at all. And he was a great and a great. He was a wonderful man, Babe Ruth. And uh, he'd stand outside of Ebbets Field and sign autographs as long as anyone wanted one. He was a terrific guy. 
So he seems and, to. Uh, uh, I've always like been her. annoyed at some of the stupid movies and books they've written about Babe. Uh, a lot of people think Babe Ruth was a drunk, which is ridiculous. Babe Ruth lived the last 19 years of his life in New York on Riverside Drive, and he was uh, at every important event in New York. He'd be here for the opening of the World's Fair and all that sort of stuff, anything. And, and he was always very kind and cordial to fans and people. And uh, yet you re you'd see a movie about him coming to bat drunk, which never happened. You'd read about him, or one of those movies had him marrying somebody before his own wife died, and that wasn't true. His wife died first before he married Claire, and uh, the man was was a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, yet, a lot of people think he was a drunk because of these stupid movies. What 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 was it that? I mean, he never he was he was trying to get a manager job, but. Yes. Everybody kept shutting him out. So yes. uh, what exactly he, was it? He had he had, he had uh, hopes of succeeding Grimes in Brooklyn. And of course he didn't get it. They they made DeRosha the manager. And he left the Dodgers. The Yankees wanted him to manage the Newark Bears. And that was Babe's big mistake because he insisted on managing the Yankees and they were not they weren't gonna fire Joe McCarthy. So he wouldn't take the Newark job, and the Newark Bears at that time in the 30s had the greatest minor league team of all time. If Ruth was managing that team, he would have looked like a genius, and he, they would have been clamoring for him. See, but but he didn't want it, so they gave the job to Oscar Witt. Oscar Witt got a job in Cleveland and so forth, and uh, Babe never got that managing opportunity, which was unfortunate. Yeah, it, it was, but I'm glad that Leo got the managing job for Brooklyn. And let's talk a little bit about Leo. Tell me some of your favorite memories of Leo, what you remember about the guy, well, especially some of the earlier, Leo, the earlier years of his manager. Leo was was quite a character. He, wa he wasn't a drinker. or well, He was a gambler. He liked, he liked to gamble, and I got him in some trouble yeah, with baseball. And he he hung out with the like people like George Raff, the actor, and so forth. And George had a reputation for being with some of the underworld people, whether he did or he didn't, who knows. But that's the way it was at the time. And then he was involved in a couple of marriages. He married Lorraine Day after getting a divorce. And uh, the CYO in Brooklyn objected to that. They thought he was giving a bad example to the kids and all this stuff. And uh, then came the uh, the suspension from uh, from the uh, commissioner, and uh, the happy Chandler at the time. Chandler suspended him for a year. And I thought he got a bum deal. I thought he uh, one month would have been sufficient. But Chandler was out to get DeRocher, and that was it. And he fired him for one year. And that's, interestingly, the day he was fired, that was the day of Jackie Robinson's debut. So the big story that day wasn't Jackie Robinson's debut. The big story that day was Leo DeRocher was suspended for a year. And uh, he came back the following year, and uh, the team wasn't doing too well. And that's when he got involved with the Giants. Stoneham and uh, Ricky got together, and Stoneham wanted shot Bert Schotten to manage the Giants, and Ricky offered him DeRocher. So DeRocher, who was hated by Giant fans, but Stoneham leaped and uh, grabbed DeRocher at the time, and Leo rewarded him with a couple of pennants and one world championship. Mm -hmm. But he was he was a brilliant manager, there's no question about it. But he made 
he gave the umpires a hard time, but the fans love this nonsense, you know, him running out on the field all the time when he closed plays and so forth. And um, but uh, all but in so, general, so he wasn't a big drinker, uh, but he did curse a lot. Say that again. No, I said he wasn't. So you say you're saying uh, Leo Drosher didn't drink that much, but he he did curse a lot though. I, I know that. Right, right, right. No, he, okay. he wasn't. He wasn't drinking. That was that wasn't one of his problems. He liked he liked the ladies, mm. and he had he had three or four marriages, and uh, and he liked the fast life. There was no question about it. And he was on all he was on television shows and radio shows. He had a he had a splendid speaking voice, mm. and uh, he, he made an impression. There was no two ways about it. And he did a good job wherever he managed. And another person who made a big impression on the Dodger fans was Pete Reeser. Let's talk a little bit about Pete Reeser. What do you remember about him? Well, I remember when he first broke in. He was just a kid, of course. And uh, they uh, in 1940, and he uh, they had the games on the radio, the exhibition games on Florida. And Pete was hitting like crazy, and they couldn't seem to get him out. And finally, he came in up to Brooklyn to stay in 1941. And that year, of course, he won the batting championship and the MVP award and all this, and Brooklyn won the pennant. And uh, it was great, great. And uh, McPhail recognized his talent immediately. And McPhail had two pitches that he brought up in, in uh, 1940 named Hugh Casey and Whitlow Wyatt, who were apparently washed up, and they both became great pitchers. Casey, a great relief pitcher, and Whitlow Wyatt was one of the best pitchers in the National League for a couple of years. So uh, McPhail had great great talent for uh, picking up these guys who were, were cast. Like Dixie Walker was a caster from Detroit. Can we he talk a little Brooklyn, bit? Uh, and I was can, can we talk a little bit about how he got Pete Reeser onto the team? Uh, there might, there's, uh, I know the story, but a lot of people might not know the story um, uh, about Pete Reeser's involvement with the Cardinal system. Can you talk a little bit about that? He was in the Cardinal system, yes, and they, he became a free agent. Uh, the uh, Ricky was running the Cardinal system at that time, and uh, Judge Landis, who was the first commissioner. Uh, just threw a whole bunch of them out and made them free agents and fined the Cardinals some amount of money. I don't know what it was. But uh, that's how Pete Reeser wound up in the uh, in the Brooklyn organization. And from that, that time on, he was a sure winner, except for his proclivity for running into walls and things. He had several severe uh, crashes in the outfield walls. and He was beamed a couple of times. And um, there's no question about it. If Pete Reeser would remain healthy, he would have easily made the Hall of Fame. But unfortunately, he didn't remain healthy. And he was in the war when he probably shouldn't have been either. Well, there was time out for that also. But when he came back he, in 1946, he ran into a wall in St. Louis uh, chasing a fly ball. It's too bad he wasn't, you know, if they play, be played today, he'd run into these canvas walls. They would, would have sat him out right. for the month. They would have sat him out for the month or something. Right. That he was supposed to uh, at first time. Yeah, that Leo put him. That Leo put him back in. Right. Uh, when he was he he had, I think it was his first big crash, and he crashed into the cement wall, 
uh, woke up in the hospital, walked around in the middle of the night, and then the doctor the next morning told him that if he got up, he would collapse, but he told the doctor that he was walking around. And uh, I think Leo Leo had him dressed just to keep uh, everybody. He knew he wasn't going to play him, but he wanted to keep everybody's spirit up. And then, obviously, he needed a pitch there in the seventh. And That's I think right. he hit a home run. I think Pete Reeser hit a home run. Could very well be. He um, he was a tremendous player. It's a shame that he had all those injuries. And um, but that's baseball, as they say. That's because baseball. all all the walls in those days were brick. Right. In all the ballparks, and you never saw a guy running up and robbing a guy of a home run either, as yeah. you do today. Uh, the only ballpark that could be done in was Yankee Stadium, that had about a six foot fence out in right field and left field. But you All you had to, to do is hit the ball over the outfielder's head, and you had a home run. Right, exactly. But if you were in center field, you had to get to the 456 mark. That's right. In the day. That was uh, <laughs> Death Valley, they called it. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, the Yankees got a little bit smarter with uh, with that, even though I think the current Yankee Stadium is a bit of a bandbox that doesn't need to be like that. But oh, sure, sure. Anyway, let's let's not get into any Yankee talk here. Let's get into uh, some some of the the tail end of uh, the Dodgers' reign in Brooklyn, and also get to the new franchise about the Mets. Well, in fifty in 1956, uh, that the uh, that was the last year as a pennant winner, and that's an interesting year for me because uh, I'm a baseball fan 77 years, and I only saw two no hit games in person. I'm not counting a couple I saw on TV, but I saw two no-hit games in person, and both of them were in the year of 1946. Both of them were in Ebbets Field. I saw Carl Erskine in May, no-hit the Giants, and then in September, Sal Magley pitching for Brooklyn, no-hit the Philadelphia Phillies. And the strange thing there is both pitchers became friends of mine down the line. And another thing, on Magley's no-hit game, Babe Pinelli, the umpire, who was a dear friend, left the tickets for me for that game. And Babe wound up in the World Series that year, and he was the plate umpire for Don Lawson's perfect game in the World Series. Absolutely right. Babe Pinelli belongs in the Hall of Fame. He never missed a game in his entire career as an umpire. He umpired in 3,400 consecutive games. And he's not in the Hall of Fame. Why I don't know. That's yeah. I have to look him up and uh, and examine that further. Well, that's, absolutely. That's that's accurate. All right, I know well, that. Tell me about uh, what it was like in, in 1957. Uh, you stayed in you stayed in Brooklyn. You didn't go anywhere like a lot of people did uh, to the suburbs and whatnot. Well, um, the attendance is falling off. A lot of people didn't believe that O'Malley would ever do what he did. It was right. just un- it was unbelievable. It was a successful franchise. Five years in New York, and they out they had more made more money than the Yankees did during those five years. The Giants were in trouble. There was no toys about that. But the Dodgers were doing wonderfully. And why anyone? It's the only time a successful franchise has been moved. Unbelievable. But O'Malley wanted. Moses to give him the land downtown. He wanted he wanted everything, which Moses wouldn't give him. Moses gave him the same deal he gave the Mets. He'd build a ballpark for them in Queens, and they'd have the parking, and they'd have. But no, O'Malley wanted the parking. He wanted the concessions. He wanted everything. 
and Los Angeles gave it to him. And uh, that, that's, how, that's how that happened. Absolutely ridiculous. And you couldn't become a Yankee fan at all? No, no. I went to a few games that, during the season, but uh, I, I never went to, to many games. I was never a Yankee fan. I admired the Yankees for many years in the, during the Jake Rupert days and Dan Topping and McPhail years and so forth. But uh, I had no use for them at all during the Steinbrenner era. That was insanity in first class. Firing managers every year and all this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And but talk to me a little bit about uh, the excitement that that must have grown as they re, as, as it got reported that uh, the National League was coming back to New York. Well, that was, that, that was greeted with a great deal. They were out of here for four years. That's another thing O'Malley did. He took National League baseball out of New York for four years. And uh, absolutely ridiculous. And uh, the news that they were coming back to the National League is the New York Mets is great, and and it was well received. And then top it off, Casey Stengel was name manager. So you couldn't beat that. Did you go to a lot of games in 1962? Oh, sure, sure. I went, I went right back. Can you tell me some of your favorite uh, moments that you, you witnessed? In 62? Mm-hmm. Not really, not not many. It was more comical than anything else. Well, tell tell us some uh, comical bit that you saw. <laughs> well, Jimmy Pearsall hitting a home run and running around the bases backwards. <laughs> that, that, that was pretty good. <laughs> and Stangle got rid of him very quickly because Pearsall all of a sudden was getting more attention than Casey. Right, exactly. <laughs> and Warren, you know, Warren Spawn wound up pitching for the Mets, and he pitched for Stengel when he was in Boston, and he, and he pitched for the Mets. And Warren Spawn always said that he played for Casey Stengel before and after he was a genius. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think we'll end on that, Tom Knight. That says it all about Casey, and that says it says a lot about the Brooklyn franchise. Casey was a big part of the Brooklyn franchise, even if at the end. Uh, he became kind of a, a a colorful nemesis, if you will, as as a member of the Yankees. But that's uh, that, Tom. I I have to thank you so much for joining, and we'll certainly have you on to talk some more Brooklyn baseball again. My pleasure, Sam. Anytime at all. Thank you. You bet. That's our show, everybody. Join us on Monday when Lee Lowenfish, cultural historian and Branch Rickey biographer, will join us on the show. That's our show. Take care, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>